Good to be with you. We are going to spend some time in the Word of God this morning. I'd love for you to pray with me and ask, ask the Spirit to help us. God in heaven, would you come now and help us? We thank you for your presence that is firm and steady. And that when our eyes lose far focus, when our hearts drift away, that your Spirit and your presence is steady and constant. You hold us close to yourself. We thank you, Lord, for your word that is a firm foundation that brings us hope. God in heaven, I pray that in, in the midst of our weaknesses, our fears, our distractions, our lack of faith, that your spirit would come, be present among us now, teach us, encourage us, comfort us in the midst of the brokenness of this world, the sin of our hearts. Pray, God, that you'd speak to us this morning and challenge and encourage us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good to be with you. Um, we have a kind of a heavy topic this morning. Death. Death, let's just come out with it, is the worst, right? Like literally, it is the worst. The enemy of every human being that's ever lived. We have to face not only our own death, but we have to face the death of loved ones. Facing our own death, dealing with the death of loved ones, stirs up all sorts of negative emotions, fear and sadness, uncertainty, a sense of hopelessness. For many of us, sort of a longing for answers. What, what happens on the other side of this life? What happens when we die? Where do we go? Can faith in Jesus really make a difference? Really, does it impact what happens after this life? Is there any comfort that we can find from the Christian faith? In our series in, in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see this morning that that's just what the Christians in Thessalonica were wrestling with, wrestling with death, wrestling with uncertainty and questions and fear. We're going to be in chapter 4 this morning of 1 Thessalonians, it's page 987 in those blue hardback Bibles, love for you to follow along with us. And we're going to jump in and wrestle with the Thessalonians about their questions about the end of life. But before we jump in there, I, I want to take a a step back and get some perspective so that we're all kind of coming at this passage from the same page, from the same place. We need to look at, at the end of Jesus' ministry for some context. Which book of the Bible gives us an account of the final moments of Jesus' life on earth? Now, I'll forewarn you, it's a trick question. Which book of the Bible gives us a look at those final moments? You probably think one of the Gospels, right? Well, it's a trick question. It's Acts, yes. So the book of Acts opens with Jesus gathering one last time with his disciples. He tells them, he says, wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. They ask him, they're still wondering about when power is going to be restored to Israel. They ask him about that. And, and Jesus said, those are, are my father's concerns. And he says, for you, I'm going to redirect you to the Holy Spirit. He's going to come and empower you to be my witnesses. And then in Acts chapter 1 verse 9, look at this verse on the screen. Jesus says these words. He says, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
And so here's this account of how Jesus' earthly ministry ends. He ascends back up into heaven in some kind of mysterious metaphysical way. He rises up into the clouds and disappears. The disciples are all standing there, mouths open, staring at the sky and, and these two angelic beings. And, and they seem to scold them a little bit like, guys, what, what are you doing? Why are you still staring up in the sky? Okay, he's coming back. But the implication is like, but for now, you need to do what, do what Jesus said and wait for the Holy Spirit and go be my witnesses. Like, there's work to be done. Stop staring at the sky. But it's important, this idea that Jesus leaves and he ascends back up into heaven, there's a promise that he will return. He'll return out of heaven in the same way that he went. See, I think we settle for a, a, a bit of an incomplete story of Jesus' ministry. We Sure, we celebrate his birth, and in a few weeks we'll, we'll be celebrating advent and the coming of christmas and we celebrate his life and all the miracles and the teaching and his demonstration of love and we certainly celebrate his death we're going to do that this morning at the the lord's supper and we celebrate his resurrection and the victory that we have and maybe occasionally we think about his ascension after the resurrection 40 days later when he ascended back up into heaven but i think we we miss out on this crucial promise the completion the consummation of the gospel the return of christ and, and as, as the Thessalonians have these questions about death and their loved ones, which we'll read about in a minute, the way Paul answers them, he directs them to the hope of Jesus' return. He directs them to the coming of the Lord. And so as we dive into 1 Thessalonians 4, we need to settle ourselves on the reality of death, but the hope of, of the Lord's coming. See, the, the death that's common to all of us that brings confusion and, 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 and all those kinds of things, there's a hope in the return of Christ. Now, many of us, we hear about the return of Christ, the last things, you know, we either are one of three things. Many of us either confused or we're just completely unfamiliar, you know, with that topic, or we are uninterested, just kind of uninterested in this teaching. But I want us to know today that the promise of Christ's return is crucial to us facing this day. That day makes a difference in this day, right? Anybody ever, anybody ever uh, walk out in the middle of a, a, of a fourth quarter blowout or turn off the game in a, the, the ninth inning when your, your team was, was down by more runs than could be, uh, they could come back from, only to find out Monday morning when you turn on the radio, there was this amazing fourth quarter comeback, this amazing ninth inning rally, and you missed it, you missed the end because you had given up. Friends, let's not miss in our theology and our thinking in our life, let's not miss the end because the end, and some of you may feel like it's a blowout that we're not coming back from, the, and knowing the end makes a difference in our experience of today. So we're going to jump into this passage, but, but I want to give us some, some general context about what we call the return of Jesus and the last thing. So you can see on the slide, I have some, some just 10 quick things listed up, and, and for those of you that want to dig in more, go to our website go up into the little search box at the top right-hand corner and, and just type in uh, Return of Jesus. And this will come up in a blog post you can read more about. But, but as we answer the specific questions that we're going to read about in First Thessalonians, here's the big picture. First of all, God created the world. He rules over the world. He's promised to recreate the world at the end of the age. Secondly, we think about the first coming of Jesus. At the first coming, Jesus declared himself that he would return to earth in power and glory, that he would judge humanity, that he would reign as king. And that was not some peripheral teaching of Jesus. He was actually executed for his claim to return after he had risen from the dead. 
The third point that we need to keep in perspective about the return of Jesus and the last things is that we now make a gospel invitation. The gospel now goes out to the world, calling people to repent, calling people to place faith in Christ in anticipation of his return because he's coming back. Fourthly, Jesus will return in a bodily fashion. He will come again in bodily form at an unknown time. It'll be preceded by a time of increased tribulation. And when he returns, it'll be evident to the whole world. Fifth, we can think about this return as the final consummation. His second coming in Greek, the word coming is, is parousia. Sometimes you hear uh, fancy theologians talk about the parousia as, as, as the return of Jesus or the revelation. In Greek, the word revelation is apocalypse. Right? That, that word has become a little more common in culture. But at, at, the, at the second coming, the apocalypse, Jesus will bring to completion God's eternal plan of redemption. The redemption that was secured in his death and resurrection will be completed in that final consummation. Sixth, his, his coming will be a time of final judgment. That all created beings, humans and angels, living and dead, will either receive reward according to their work or punishment according to their work. Believers receiving eternal life and, and unbelievers receiving eternal death. Seven, there is an eternal punishment, right? That, that all humans will continue to exist in the afterlife. Those that persist, sadly, in sinful rebellion against their creator will, will ultimately be cast out of God's kingdom and face eternal punishment. But our hope, number eight, is in resurrection life. That the followers of Jesus who are born again will be or have been justified by faith, and so we will be raised up to eternal life in a glorified body in God's kingdom. Number nine, there will be a new creation, not just our personal resurrection, but a new creation of heaven and earth. This current existence will pass away, will be transformed into a new heaven, a new earth, a glorious, eternal, perfect existence in the presence of God. And so number ten, the scriptures call us to wait, to be ready, to be alert and prepared for the return of Christ, to walk in, pu- in purity, to live responsibly, to spread the gospel in expectation of His coming. So that's a broad perspective on what Scripture teaches. And now we're going to hone in, track with me, First Thessalonians 4. We're going to pick up in verse 13 and hear their specific question and the instruction that they're giving. The Word of God says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen. Amen. You know, last week we talked about the call for the Christians to love one another and to live responsibly before the Lord, that call to love and to live. And and yet today we find out that the Christians in the first century Thessalonican church were struggling with death. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy who are writing this letter, Paul writing it with his ministry partners, he says in verse 13, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed or misinformed or ignorant about what's going to happen to Christians who are asleep. 
Now, sleep is an idiom, okay? It's an idiom used in the New Testament to refer to death. There's certainly the reality of physical death, but sleep is a helpful way to think about death, particularly for Christians, because in Christ, death is only temporary. Like falling asleep, right? Knowing that you're going to wake up in your eternal state. And so he had, he addresses this section writing about a, a misunderstanding. A misunderstanding about what happens to Christians who have died before Christ returned. Now this might seem like a peculiar question, but, but think, uh, think about things from a first century church mindset. In the first century, remember, people were still telling stories about how Jesus had risen up into the air, how the angels said he would come back, quoting Jesus and his prophecies that he would return. There was this strong expectation that Jesus would return any day. His return to earth was eminent in the mind of first century Christians. They had fixed their hope on that day. Some of them a little too much. Maybe that's why the angel, as we read in Acts, sort of says to them, hey, stop staring into the sky and get to work, right? You're going to have to wait a little while. There's some work to be done before he returns. And so there was this, this urgency was in the front of their mind every day waking up. Is he coming back today? As we talked last week, some of the Thessalonians had even lost their motivation, it sounds like, to work because they're like, who cares? He's coming back. Now look, here's the thing. This wrestling is a little bit foreign to us because I think we have lost that sense of urgency, right? We don't wonder about what happens to Christians that died before Jesus returns because we're often not thinking about his return. The coming of Christ has sort of faded into the background. We are, we're understandably, yes, focused on our life today in Christ, but sometimes that's prevented us from fixing our hope on the future and, and, and with this sense of urgency and this, this return of Jesus as an eminent thing for those early Christians came a worry. And their worry was, oh no, the gospel's going out, churches are being planted, people are coming to Christ, but what happens to those people that believe in Jesus and then they die before he returns? They were worried. Are they going to miss out? Do they somehow not to get to go into God's kingdom? Now it's unlikely this was a theoretical concern. Most likely Paul is writing to people. Remember, Timothy has gone to the city. He's gotten a report and come back. It's likely that he's, he shared with him. Listen, Paul, they're worried. Some people earlier this month got sick in Thessalonica and they died and loved ones passed away and they're worried. We need to clarify for them because they think that the people that died aren't going to get to be with Jesus. Verse 13, they're reassured. Look, if a loved one dies, a friend or a family member You are right to grieve, but you don't need to grieve as those that don't have any hope. See, they had begun to lose hope for those that had died. And so we get this profound word in Scripture that you may not grieve as others do who have not hope, who have no hope, because we we can trust in Christ and in His return. And so we don't need to grieve as those who have no hope. See, apart from Christ... Death is, is hopeless, right? It, it leads to many to an unbearable grief. I remember talking with a man one time who, whose wife had suddenly and tragically died in an accident. And, and for days, for weeks, all he could think about was just taking his own life. He had given up all hope. What more is there to live for? And people, people tell themselves when they lose a loved one, well, well, she's in a better place. Or people will say, well, he, he's going to live on in our hearts. But, but what does that even mean? What, what is that 
comfort grounded in. It's, it's just, for many people, sort of a, a baseless, well, let's try to be positive in the face of death. For many, death is the end, and life ultimately has no meaning, no purpose. There is no future expectation of anything after death, and so death is, is just the end, and it is a grief that, that has no hope. But in Christ, we can face death with hope. Now, now some Christians take this too far, and, and I've seen this, maybe you have as well, and some Christians try to say, well, we, you know, in Christ, he's, he's been victorious over death, so, so therefore, there's no sadness in death, and, and there's no grief. And if you feel sad or gr- grieving when a Christian dies, you just, you're lacking faith. And I, and I think that's not a helpful or biblical way to think. Losing a loved one, even a loved one that loved Jesus, is still hard. And yes, we can rejoice that they're in heaven, but, but we feel loss and we feel grief. The idea that you shouldn't be sad when a loved one dies is, is just baloney. There is sorrow in death when, when a loved one is, is taken. And we miss them. And the Bible says that death is our enemy. Jesus, at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he wept. When Stephen was martyred, killed, stoned to death for his faith, it says that the Christians in Jerusalem mourned deeply. Paul, in, in his letter to the Thessalonians, talks about a, a friend named Epaphroditus who became sick. And Paul says, I was distressed, and if he had died, I would have had deep sorrow. There's deep sorrow in, in the death of loved ones, but it's not, a, it's not a sorrow without hope. Verse 13 says that we don't grieve as those who have no hope, because we do have hope. What is our hope? What does it say in verse 14? Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, now we have hope for the future. See, listen to this. Our hope for the future is grounded in Christ's work in the past. Grounded in His resurrection. Jesus died and He overcame death. He rose from the dead. And so our hope for the future is grounded in that work. He died on the cross. He rose again to redeem us. He faced and conquered death on our behalf. And on the cross, He received, the the sin of the world was placed on Him. He received the righteous judgment of God. He defeated Satan. He conquered sin and death through His resurrection. And any hope that we have for life after death, any hope that we have for the second coming of Christ, any hope that we have for the future restoration of this broken world is ultimately tied to, founded on Jesus' work on the cross and Him walking out of the empty tomb three days later. That's our hope. Friends, do you believe that? Do you have faith in that? Maybe you walked in here not knowing, not sure of your eternal state. Maybe you're here this morning and you've heard about the teaching of of Christ or maybe you've grown up in the church or maybe you consider yourself a Christian, but it's a cultural, sort of a, a, of a routine type of a thing. But, but this morning, will you hear the call of the Holy Spirit and recognize that the death of, of Jesus can absolve you of your sin, can release you from judgment, can release you of the fear of death, that through faith in Him as your Savior, His resurrection becomes the, the promise of your resurrection. First and foremost, a new birth as you come to faith in Christ. As you have hope and peace and the certainty of, of forgiveness and freedom, as you now can, can no longer be afraid of death, not that you welcome it, but there's no fear knowing where you are in Christ. And if we're going to have any hope and have any certainty about what comes in the future, we need to know what Jesus has done for us in the past. Not just 
in theory, but personally in our hearts. Trust Him. Know Him. Believe in Him as Savior. So Paul says, since we believe this, since we believe that He died and rose again, it gives us hope for the future. Hope for life after death. Hope in the return of of Christ. The Scriptures say that Jesus was like the first fruits from the dead. That first pick of the harvest. Jesus rose from the dead, guaranteeing that all of His followers will too. His resurrection secures and guarantees our future resurrection. As we look at verse 14, it says, When Jesus returns, He will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Right? He'll bring with Him those Christians that have already died. So we don't need to worry if people die before Jesus returns because they will, they will come back with Him. Christians who die immediately go to be with God. Triumphing over sin and death. Immediately, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. So immediately, those who, who love and follow Jesus, who the Holy Spirit have given faith, will, will die from this world and immediately go to be with God in the presence of heaven. Their souls enter into eternal life. What theologians call an intermediate state. See, here's why it's intermediate. Because it's not until the return of Christ, at some point yet to come, at the end of the age, when the souls of those who have died will be united with their resurrected body. See, the ultimate state of eternal life for believers in Jesus is to exist as body and soul together. And so now here we are 2,000 years later, there have been millions of Christians that have died between Jesus' first and second coming. And the promise, the hope of this passage is they haven't been forgotten. They haven't been left out. They're not going to miss the return of of Jesus or miss being part of God's kingdom. In fact, they will have the honor, those who are already in heaven waiting, will have the honor of coming down with Jesus, verse 14 says, when He returns at the end of the age. And so now we grieve. We grieve when loved ones die. We grieve when Christians die, but we grieve with hope. With hope that whether dead or alive, all Christians will be raised up to new life. Now some of you are asking a hard question, and I talked with a man who who had to wrestle with this question just last week. What about a, a friend or a family member who dies who isn't a Christian? Then do we grieve without hope? I don't think so. See, even when a friend or family member dies that doesn't know Christ, that doesn't have the same certainty that we have of eternal life, we can still trust God. And the trust in God's sovereignty and His plan and His purpose can give us hope. We trust that God is sovereign, that all things are according to His good and perfect wise plan, even the tragic death of someone we love. We trust that God is more merciful than we can ever imagine, and so we have hope in death. Because while faith in Jesus is required for eternal life, we, we never know the mercy of God. We never know the work of the Holy Spirit that might be happening in the final moments before someone faces death. So we trust that He's sovereign. We trust that He's more merciful than we could ever imagine. And we trust that He's just. See, even for those that face eternal punishment, I believe we can find peace knowing that God is good. That God is just. That sin and evil are always dealt with fairly. And that's a hard truth. But we trust in God's justice. Now look, remember in this passage, Paul's directing the Christians that are worried about death to the hope of the Lord's coming. 
right, to the hope of our future resurrection. He says, ultimately, we don't grieve without hope because of of what Jesus has done that secured what he's going to do. And then beginning in verse 15, we we get some detail, some unpacking of what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. Look at Look at verse 15 with me. This promise that the dead will rise. Verse 15 says, This is the word of the Lord, that those of us that are still alive when Jesus returns won't precede those who have died. So in terms of rising from the dead, if you're like still alive, if Jesus comes back this week, says we're not going to precede those that are already in heaven with the Lord. And then we get some explanation of what's going to happen when the Lord's coming. As I, as I already mentioned, that, that, that Greek term, coming of the Lord, is, is parousia. Jesus has been in heaven, reigning with God the Father, ever since His ascension back up into heaven. Jesus came to earth, born as a man, fully human, fully divine, is now back up in heaven with His divine, His divine nature and human nature, existing now in unison, reigning in glory, as the Son of God, the Son of Man. But the day is coming when He will come back. And as we read in Acts 1, He's going to come back the same way. Just as He ascended up into the clouds, He's going to descend out of the clouds. Now, I, I love this in verse 16. For a loud person like me, I get some comfort in this. He's not coming quietly when He comes back. It says when He descends onto the earth at His second coming, He's going to come with a cry of command. That's a commanding shout. And the, and the word there in the original language has this ring of authority and urgency. And I think he's going to come down and going to shout, wake up everybody. The end has come and I am back. And we all get to hear this, this expression of all this loud commotion, waking up those who were asleep. And I couldn't help but think about this camp that I went to when I was a kid. And the counselors every day would think of a new and cruel way to wake us up. And, 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 and one day they'd come in with a bugle, you know, and, and, and the next day they'd come in with it with a loud boom box. You know, and here I was 10 years old, you know, fast asleep, or they'd come in one morning banging pots. And, and there's a, a sense in which that's what Jesus is doing, not in an insensitive way, but in a sense of urgency, like, wake up. I'm here. It's time to, to get up. Let's go. The end has come. And he's coming with joy and with authority and with power. Not only is his voice going to be heard, but, but the scripture says that the voice of an, of an archangel. Now, angels, we know, are spiritual beings created by God, created by God as warriors, as guardians, as messengers, as worshipers. And this archangel, this lead angel is going to be the commanding officer of God's army. And he's going to be coming down shouting right with the warrior Jesus. And there's going to be a trumpet that's going to blast. In the Old Testament, trumpets were used to lead God's people into battle, used for warfare, used for worship, to proclaim the Lord's presence. And that trumpet is going to come proclaiming the Lord's presence at the end of the age. And in verse 16, it says that that the dead in Christ, in other words, those Christians, right, who have already died before his return, will actually be the first to rise up to receive a resurrection body. The dead in Christ will rise first, it says. Now, some of you that are following all of this are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, Tim. I thought we read earlier in verse 14 that, that the dead in Christ are in heaven and they're coming down with Jesus. And now you're saying that they're going to be the first to rise up from the, from the grave. How's that going to work? Well, look, the, the souls of men and women throughout the ages that followed Jesus are now in heaven, but their bodies are still here on earth. 
And so the, the picture that we get from Scripture is that their souls will be descending with Jesus in the air and that He'll shout and call out and their bodies will rise up from the dead in a new resurrection body and join with their souls their permanent, eternal state, body and soul together. And then in verse 17 it says, after that, those who are still alive will be caught up or carried up. This is wild stuff, but if we're alive when Jesus returns, we we will see Jesus descend, we will see the the resurrection of past believers, we will see them united in heaven, and then in the next moment, we too will be risen up, caught up, it says, carried up. That Greek word for caught up has the idea of force and suddenness. The Latin word for caught up is where we get the term rapture. We'll be raptured up out of earth into the sky. And then together, all Christians, past, present, will rise up, will meet Jesus in, in the air. It says in the clouds. Probably not, not referring there to like rain clouds in the sky, but the clouds of glory that scriptures again and again describe the presence of the Lord in the clouds of glory. And so Christians rising from the dead, meeting, and I know this, this sounds supernatural. It is supernatural. And then what happens next after Jesus descends and, and live, the living and dead rise up and, and their resurrected bodies are now meeting Jesus in the air? What happens next is, is where Christians tend to disagree on. And there's some different schools of thought about this. Those brothers and sisters that, that come from a dispensational perspective say that once believers join Jesus in the air, they then return back up into heaven. And under this way of thinking, the earth is then going to experience a time of great tribulation, which Christians are going to be in heaven and will be avoiding. After the tribulation, Jesus will return again to reign over Israel. But, but here, the elders hold to what's called a covenantal perspective. And so our view of what happens next, the best way we believe to understand the Bible's teaching, is that after there's this great reunion in the sky, is that we will, we will then be joined with Jesus as he continues his descent down to earth, that believers now in our resurrected state will descend with Jesus to the earth and reign with him, either in, in the millennium or in the, the new creation, we will reign in victory on earth with the Lord Jesus, raptured up into the sky. Receive. Can, can, we, can we even picture this? Probably not. This is how Jesus describes it. Maybe this will help you. Jesus describes the scene of his second coming and calling his children back to himself in Matthew 24. You can see on the screen it says this. Immediately after the the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the power of the heavens will be shaken. And so there's these heavenly signs, the world is going to be shaken up, and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the whole earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. It's going to be loud. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be undeniable as the trumpet blows and Jesus and the angels are shouting God's elect children from every nation and tongue and tribe from the ends of the earth rising up to meet Jesus with our resurrected bodies. And 1 Corinthians 15 says this is all going to happen in the blink of an eye. We'll be changed. We'll be transformed into our glorified resurrected bodies. Now this all sounds wild, but let's bring ourselves back to the original question. 
the original reality that the Thessalonians were struggling with. We're all going to die someday. Everybody's going to die. And it's crucial that we understand that the ultimate hope that we have in Christ is not only that we're going to be zapped up into heaven and live for eternity as some disembodied soul floating around on the clouds. That's not the ultimate hope of Christians. Our ultimate hope is that, that the day will come when Christ will return and we will be resurrected. Friends, listen, Christians, we have become far too focused on eternal life in heaven rather than eternal life in our resurrected bodies in a new creation. And yes, we can find comfort that when we die, we'll go to heaven. But the hope of the apostles and the early church was the hope of a future resurrection. We will have a glorified physical body in a glorified physical earth in eternity. Now, some of you are asking a question, because I know I asked it this week, what's our resurrected body going to be like? You know, if we're, if there's all this rising from the dead and souls and bodies uniting and Jesus and glory. And gl- what's it going to be like? Well, we have to remember, remember I talked to you earlier, that Christ's resurrection sets the pattern for our resurrection, right? So some of us are familiar with that part of the account in the Gospels. Jesus rose back from the dead three days after his crucifixion. He lived on earth for 40 days, right? There was continuity between his old body and his new body. He was recognized. There was something different about him, but he was recognizable. And so that will be what it's like for us. Our form will be different, but it will be recognizable. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you can go read that later this afternoon if you're curious about all this stuff. Give some, some perspective on our resurrected bodies. It says that they will originate from heaven, not from the dust of the earth. We're not quite to that passage yet. That our new bodies will originate from heaven, not from the dust of the earth. We will be formed after the image of the Son of God, no longer formed after the image of Adam and Eve. That our bodies will be spiritual, not natural. They'll be imperishable, never dying, not perishable. They'll be eternal, not temporal. Our bodies will be powerful, not weak. It'll be like the glory of the sun, not the moon. We'll live in a state of of glory, the scripture says, not a state of dishonor. And here's what it says in, in 1 Corinthians 15. You can throw that scripture up now. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Okay, good. I don't have to feel bad. This is super mysterious, right? Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, I have to pause here. Did you guys hear the one about the church that put this verse up as their nursery motto? Jan got it, right? We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Okay, anyway, uh, if you didn't get it, think about it later. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body will put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Friends, there's a lot of this that is that is may seem confusing and abstract. But here's the point. Death is going to be swallowed up. Death will no longer have victory. Our greatest enemy will be defeated. 
And yes, we still face death, but what does the scripture say? It loses its sting. I love that. We still have to mourn. We still have to grieve. We still have to anticipate our own physical death, but but it's lost its sting. It's lost its power. It's been swallowed alive in the resurrection of Jesus. And now, friends, brothers and sisters, there is victory and there is hope. And this is our greatest hope. Our greatest hope ultimately is, is yes, that our sins are forgiven. Yes, that we have been born again to new life. Yes, that we have the certainty of heaven. But beyond that, we will live again in God's new creation where there is no death, there is no sin, there is no evil, there is no fear, there is no tears of sorrow and grief. And the best part of the whole story Paul writes, is in verse 17. Look at the end of verse 17. He he climaxes with all of this, with this simple truth. And so, we will always be with the Lord. He says, all all of this metaphysical reality and prophecy, and he says, and so, we'll always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these things. Now, I know some of you are like, Paul, okay, I'm encouraged that we'll always be with the Lord, but can you finish the story and give us more detail and flesh out when this is going to happen and how it's going to happen and what the new creation is going to be like and what my body will look like and how fast will I be able to run a mile and, you know, I've always had this bad knee. What's that going to be like in heaven? Paul says, no, 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 no. All of that fades away. All of that becomes unimportant when we come to the reality that we will always be with God. And everything else just fades and he just ends on that note. Says that's it. That's all you need to know. You'll be with God. We hear the echo of Jesus' words from Matthew 28 before his ascension when he gave what we call the Great Commission. And then he says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If you're afraid, if you're confused, if you don't understand, just just know that. That whatever happens today, tomorrow, whatever happens at the end of the age, if you're trusting in Christ, if your hope is in him, you will always be with him. That's what we were created for. We were created to be with God. You were created to know your creator, to be reconciled back into relationship with God, to walk in covenant with him. You were created to look to God as as father, to live in relationship with him. And and being with God, walking with God fulfills every longing of your heart. It, it's what gives you meaning, what gives you purpose and value, and what gives, what gives your life freedom and hope and peace and joy is being with the Lord Jesus. And there will come an end. And we all understand that. A personal end, an end to this world, and even scientists agree on that much. But know this, friend. Nothing can separate you. Nothing can separate you from God's love and His presence. Not tribulation. No distress or persecution, not famine or poverty. There's no danger or no violence, not death or life or angels or demons. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The promise is that we will always be with Him, whether in this life or in the next, whether you die before His coming or whether you're here when He comes. And so verse 18 says, Now comfort one another with these words. How have we missed that? How have we failed to comfort one another with this teaching? We're confused, we disagree, it's abstract, and so we put it aside. But friends, we need to anticipate, we need to long for the return of Christ. We need to put our hope 
Not just that we'll die and go to heaven, but that Jesus will come to earth, that he will restore heaven and earth. And we need to encourage one another, remind one another, build expectation and hope. And yes, absolutely, we rest in the finished work of Christ. And we're going to celebrate that in a moment. We're going to come to the table and, and, and have those tangible reminders of his, his broken body and his shed blood. And yes, we, we rest in the finished work of Christ, but we also hope in that final consummation when sin and death will be swallowed up and all things, all things will be made new. And the burdens and the sorrows and the crushing weight of this world that you carry will be restored and you'll be made new. And you'll be with Christ. And so be encouraged, it says. We need to encourage one another with these things. And so first of all, let's rest. Rest in the certainty that you belong to Jesus and you will always be with Him. Let's encourage one another and and remind one another, just rest in that. Rest that you belong to God. You'll always be with Him. Let's encourage one another that we can have hope. That we can have hope in the certainty that what Jesus secured at His death, what He secured in His resurrection, will be fully consummated and accomplished at His return. That all of creation will be transformed. And so we can rest and we can have hope and we can rejoice. We can rejoice in the certainty of triumph. That on your worst days, death will be swallowed up. On days when you're not even sure if you believe, Christ will come in victory. On days when it seems like the world and darkness is going to overpower us, know that a reigning king is coming that cannot be defeated. Leon Morris, this Australian New Testament scholar, he died in 2006, and so he's living it. He's living it right now in glory with Jesus, awaiting that final coming of the Lord. He he wrote this, and I'm so encouraged by these words, talking about this passage. He says, Paul's words are a source of continual strengthening for the believer. Not a spur to fascination with the future. They convey the assurance that the power of God will never be defeated. God is supreme. And when He sees that that time has come, He will draw this age to its close and usher in the new age with the parousia. Whether we live or whether we die, we do not go beyond His power. Even in the face of death, that antagonist that no human can tame, we can remain calm and triumphant. For we know that those who sleep, sleep in Jesus and have their place in the final scheme of things. No human can tame death, he says, but but we can remain calm. We can even remain triumphant knowing that Jesus himself has slain that enemy, that he will return. And whether asleep or awake, whether alive or dead, we will have our place in the final scheme of God's plan. Amen? So listen, as we close this morning, we're going to wrap up and and, and look back. As we look forward, we're going to look back and we're going to come to the table of the Lord's Supper. We're going to rest in our salvation. As we do that, we're going to look ahead. We're going to anticipate our final redemption. Because see, going to the cross, looking in the empty tomb, being reminded of your forgiveness, being reminded that you've been born again, should build in you a longing and an anticipation for His second coming. See, the broken body that we're going to remember when we hold that that bread this morning 
should be a reminder that you will one day have a resurrection body. That because His body broke on the cross, one day our body will be raised up. You know, Paul writes about the Lord's Supper. He says, we eat this bread and we drink this cup. And as often as we do it, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes again. Every day reminding ourselves of that hope. Hope of what we have and hope of what we will have that's been secured. Amen?